Thank you very much. Good afternoon, and thank you for, for being here. Um, am I too loud? Not loud enough? You're okay? Good. If your ears start bleeding at some point, just um, wave your hands or something. Uh, thank you for, for coming to this. This is Finding Hope in a World of Disappointment. So if that was not what you were expecting and are disappointed by the title, uh, you may wander off and go to whatever else you were thinking this was going to be. Um, the theme, obviously, of this whole weekend is hope. Uh, it's a theme that is so apt for the, the time that we're in with the 18 months that we've just had, the things that we're continuing to endure culturally and endure personally. Um, I've got the title, uh, Finding Hope in a World of Disappointment. For some reason, when they thought of disappointment, my name came to mind. So I don't quite know what to make of that. Um, there are lots of kinds of disappointment uh, we can experience, from the fairly trivial to the, the far more serious. Um, you may have been disappointed with the lunch you ate. Uh, you may be disappointed with your life <laughs> uh, and anything kind of in between. And we're not short of places to find disappointment. Uh, we don't have to look far. It's not something that we are ever in danger of missing out on. And I want to begin our session and to frame this, this discussion by thinking about a very particular kind of disappointment and how the, the particularly the resurrection of Jesus is the key to finding hope. Uh, my plan is to, to teach for a little bit and then there'll be, I think, a good amount of time for discussion and Q&A. So if you're happy to um, join in with that, that would be great. Um, I don't think we have another mic, so you may have to, to shout your questions uh, loudly and I'll repeat them into here for whoever's listening on the internet. Does that sound good? It's all we got, so I hope that's the case. Um, it's been very well observed that as we have become more, uh, spending more time with social media, our levels of anxiety have risen. Um, there's a whole load of other things that are causing us anxiety, but it's certainly well um, observed that social media itself is a particular driver of anxiety and all the corresponding kind of mental health issues that can go with that. Um, one of the ways in which this has been described is something called Instagram envy. Um, I read an article about this in the, the New York Times uh, a while ago. Um, Instagram envy is, is a particular phenomenon, I guess. Uh, you'll know Instagram. It's a, a social media site for sharing photographs. Uh, Instagram envy is something that results when you spend a lot of time looking at other people's Instagram accounts. Because it's a, a photograph sharing website, you tend to share the better photographs that you have. So you don't, you know, necessarily post a picture of your, your dull breakfast from this morning, uh, but you might post a picture of a really special evening meal. Uh, you don't necessarily post a picture of your commute to work, but you might post a picture of your really nice holiday. Um, you won't post a picture of cleaning up the sick that one of your kids has uh, kindly kind of produced, but you might post a picture of a particularly kind of sweet, precocious moment that your kids have at home. 
And the cumulative effect of everyone posting the highlights of their life is that you keep looking at all these amazing pictures and thinking your life by comparison is pretty drab. Because everybody else constantly looks like they're having an amazing and extremely photographic kind of time. And you're thinking, well, my life's not like that. My meals don't look like that. My family life doesn't look like that. My trips and my travels don't look like that. And so we get this thing called Instagram envy. And it's a real thing. Um, you may be familiar with the whole um, pathology called fear of missing out or FOMO. Have you heard of that? Uh, it's been around for a while. It's, it's enough of a thing that apparently it's being studied by a team of psychologists at Oxford. This is something that's, that's big enough and pervasive enough that the kind of experts are wanting to get their minds around it and to try and track it. But the idea is that we are increasingly fearful that we might miss out on some of the best things that are out there. It's very much a first world kind of issue. But the idea is that life is short, the world is big, and we only get one shot at life. And for those of us who perhaps don't have to worry about where the next meal is coming from, or we don't have to worry about having a roof over our heads, the thing that we do worry about is getting to the end of our lives and missing out on the best of the experiences we could have had. So you may remember a, a few years ago, there was a, I think it was a TV show initially, then a book called 50 Places to See Before You Die. So things like the Grand Canyon, the Great Barrier Reef, um, the Masai Mara, and 47 other places that you really have to see before you die. Uh, the book came out, that was a, a bestseller for a number of years, and it seemed to spawn a whole new kind of industry of, of things you've got to get done before you, you kind of pop your clogs. So after things to see before you die, there was a hundred things to do before you die, uh, which included getting a tattoo and milking a cow. I don't know where you are on those particular ones. Uh, there's a hundred things to eat before you die, such as a hot dog, get one of those up there, and crocodile, which I don't think you can get at Creation Fest, although I'm not sure what's in the burgers, so you never know. But it's interesting that those things sell amazingly. There's movies you have to watch, albums you have to hear, experiences you have to go through. There are so many things you not just could do, but must do before your 75, 80, whatever years is up. And again, it's very significant that this is the kind of thing that occupies us. This is the kind of thing that troubles us. Um, it's, it's, I'm no biologist, so someone can kind of correct me if I've got this wrong, but my understanding is that we are the only creatures on the planet who feel that life is too short. And it's interesting that our generation, you know, we've got the longest life expectancy of pretty much any generation in history. But even with those added years, we still feel, it's hardwired into us, we still feel that life is too short. Um, fruit flies, I'm told, have a lifespan of about two weeks. 
Um, there are some sharks and whales that can be around for well over a century. But we are the ones who feel as though there's meant to be more. We're just unsatisfied. Which is another way of saying we find life disappointing. Um, we're, a, we're a mix of ages here. Um, I'm, I'm at the age now where I'm allowed to say, those of you who are younger, okay? I get to do that now. Uh, those of you who are younger, you probably don't experience that heaviest kind of disappointment in life yet. But generally, when you get to your midlife, that's when you start to feel as though there are quite a few dreams that are never going to be realized. There are quite a few hopes that you now realize are never actually going to come to fruition. There's all kinds of ambitions and longings and yearnings you had for your life that you now have to reckon with the fact, I'm probably not going to get most of those things done. And it tends to be that midlife crisis is a, is a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. A lot of people hit their 40s, and that's when you don't just feel disappointed with things, you start to feel disappointed with life itself your career, or lack thereof, your marriage, or lack thereof, your family, all of it starts to feel like, is this it? Because this doesn't feel like it's enough for me. And so we live in a world of disappointments, not just disappointed with politicians, disappointed with particular things, but disappointed with our own lives. And so what I want us to think about is, is where we go with that disappointment. Uh, we do feel it. If you haven't yet, you will at some point. And really the only answer to that kind of disappointment, if you can't live your dream life now, which you can't, <laughs> the only other hope for our disappointment is if there's something more than this life. So uh, many of us, if you know the Bible well, you will be familiar with uh, dear Job. And Job was a man who we know suffered enormously, um, chronically, agonizingly, unimaginably. And as Job was, was stewing in his sufferings with no apparent prospects of relief in sight, he started thinking about nature. And Job realized that there were, if you like, rumors <laughs> of resurrection in the natural world itself. So there's a passage where, you know, Job's probably just sat outside, suffering away, and he sees a tree, and he reflects on something he notices about trees. So listen to this. This is Job chapter 14, verse 7. Job says, for there is hope for a tree. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again, that its shoots will not cease, though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. Uh, Job is saying that a tree can be reduced to a stump. And yet there's hope for that tree because sometimes that stump can sprout again 
And it can bud again. New life can come. Branches can begin to grow out of it. And we see this all around. I was staying with some friends recently who really have a beautiful garden. And one of their, their, their plants that I love the most, I went over to look at it, and they had cut it way back. They cut it right down to the very bottom. And I was disappointed. I was like, oh, man, I love that plant. Why did you hack that away? And my friend said, well, we have to cut it back because it'll, it'll flower again in the summer if we cut it back now. And sure enough, when I went back a couple of weeks later, this thing was, had just exploded back into life. So in nature, we just see what looks like game over turning into new life. And as Job thinks about that, he can't help but wonder what that means for us. And so Job goes on to say, as waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. So Job is saying, in nature we get these examples of what looks like life beyond death, but for humans it just seems that we die and that's it. And Job can't reconcile that. That doesn't feel right. There's all these suggestions in the natural world of, of new life, of new beginnings. And Job is thinking, surely there's got to be more to life than just the years of disappointment we experience. Rumors of resurrection. Well, what Job kind of hoped for and, and kind of instinctively yearned for, the New Testament makes very, very clear to us. So I want to move us uh, to a couple of passages in the New Testament which talk about this in much more detail. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks, and this is going to be very close to home for some of you this weekend. Paul talks about how life in our bodies now is like being in a tent. Okay, so you've been doing a kind of good worked example of this over this weekend, many of you. So Paul obviously knew a lot about tents. Paul built tents as his kind of day job. And Paul knew what the limitations of tents were. So listen to what Paul says um, about your tent. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. And again, he's speaking about our earthly, bodily life now. Paul says, We know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we not be found naked. For, a, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So Paul is basically saying life now is characterized by groaning. So if that's how life feels to you now, Paul says that is normal. It is normal to groan now. This is a world of frustrated desires, of unsatisfied longings. It is a world of disappointment. And Paul says that our, our bodies are a great example of this. He says our bodies are like tents. 
um, he says they can be destroyed. They are vulnerable. Um, some of you discovered that a couple of nights ago. Tents are not the sturdiest of things. Um, Paul's own body had been wrecked by his own ministry, by the opposition that he'd been experiencing. Our bodies can be destroyed very easily. We feel that. But the other thing Paul says about a tent is it's temporary. You don't desire to live in your tent, you know, forever. You, you enjoy camping if you're someone who's enjoying camping. I, I don't enjoy camping. I'm allowed to say I don't enjoy camping here. Is that okay? I don't trust accommodation that I can carry. If I can carry it, that is not proper accommodation. And Paul says, just as our tents are temporary, our bodies now are temporary. They're not eternal. And here's the great thing. Paul says we don't go from a tent to no tent. Paul says we're going to go from tents to buildings. In other words, the life that is to come is going to be more real than the life we live now. Okay, this is where we get things, I think, so terribly wrong. We tend to assume, okay, life now is, is physical. I can touch it. It's tangible. It's real. And then we imagine the life to come is going to be all kind of spooky and floaty and ghostly and very, very intangible. Paul is saying the opposite. This now is the tent. Okay, I don't care how amazing your body looks. Your body is a tent. And Paul says, we await a building. Uh, we're going to go from being less clothed to more clothed. We're going to have something even more real. We're going to have a real, better physical life in the age to come. Does that make sense? That is our hope. This world of disappointment now is not going to be the only world we get to experience. Your body of disappointment now is not going to be the only body you get to experience. Which sounds great, but how do we know we can trust it? How do we know that's real? How do we know it really is safe to trust that there is a better life to come. Well, Paul goes on to say in one of his other letters that the basis for our hope is the resurrection of Jesus. Because what happened to Jesus' body is a template of what God is going to do to our body and indeed what God is going to do to the whole world in the age to come. So Jesus' resurrection is not just a, a kind of one-off stance that God has done in history. God's resur Jesus' resurrection is the template for our own. It is the proof of the life that we have to come. Um, as I was driving down to, to Cornwall yesterday, I was listening to a, a Tim Keller sermon in the car. And uh, he was talking about time travel, you know, in movies and TV shows, time travel... And he said, always, that when, you, when time travel is portrayed, it's always us moving into another time. But he says, one of the things the Bible shows us 
is that the kind of time travel the gospel gives us is not when we go into the future, but when the future comes into the present. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the future age breaking into the present. His resurrection is the proof to us that there is a resurrection age to come. There will be a life without disappointment. So in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, Paul says, If in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, fallen asleep is Paul's way of talking about Christians who've died. Okay, because death to the Christian, because of this hope, becomes, it's like sleep. It's just a temporary thing and one day we will wake up. So Paul is saying Christ has raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of all those who've died. Now, for those of you who grow things, you may well be more of a, a green-fingered person than I am. The first fruits, that's the first batch of whatever it is you were growing. I was staying with a, a friend uh, last night who, uh, on the side of our dinner, we had homegrown beans. And these apparently were the first beans of the crop for this year. And apparently in, in his family, his family was saying, yeah, that, that first batch of beans is how you know you are going to have beans with every single meal that you eat now through till about September or October. Okay, that's what first fruits is. It's the guarantee of all the rest that is to come. That this portion of the harvest has appeared means all the rest of it is on its way. And so Paul is saying the resurrection of Jesus is the first of many. It's the first of all the resurrections that we are going to experience as well. It's not just a one-off singularity. It's, it's the starting gun for all the rest of us. So Jesus' resurrection is the proof that one day there's going to be a whole harvest of resurrections that we are going to enjoy so what's going to happen? What does that hope look like? Well, again, the New Testament shows us that Jesus' own resurrection is the kind of picture of what we are going to be like. Um, we know that when we die, we will go to be with Jesus. Paul says that in Philippians 1, if I die, I will be with Christ, which is better. But we also know that our final destination is a new creation with resurrected bodies for eternity. So the question is, what is that going to be like? What, what kind of bodies are we going to enjoy? What, what have we got to look forward to? How's it going to work? Well, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, Paul says, because he knows how we think, he says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, you can ask that out of curiosity. You can ask that out of deep skepticism. Um, you know, how do you raise a dead person? How do you raise what is now just a, a pile of dust? I mean, good luck with that. Everything else seems to tell us that once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. So how on earth can you talk about you 
one day being alive long after you've died? It's a good question. Paul also says we ask the question with what kind of body? So let's run with that question. What, what are our resurrected bodies going to be like? Okay, I don't know how your mind works, but I, I've got like a, a gajillion questions about this. How, how old are we going to be in the age to come? Will we be the age we were when we died? Will we all be the same age as each other? In my resurrected body, will I... Will I have the... I don't know, will I have the blue eyes that I'd always hoped for in this life? Will I have the same hairline? What kind of technology are we going to be up to in the new creation? Okay, I recently had to, to teach my mother how to use iTunes, and if the words do not murder were not actually in the Bible, I may have been tempted to, to commit murder. Am I going to be trying to teach Moses how to kind of use the internet? I mean, what's it going to be like? How's it going to work? Uh, sadly, I'm sure every one of us will know people who've, who've lost kids. Maybe some of us have. So when they're resurrected, are they still going to be kids? I mean, how does this work? Well, it's very natural to wonder. But it's foolish to worry. And that's what Paul says in these next verses. He, he says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And then he immediately says, you foolish person. <laughs> so, okay, Paul, I just, you just, he just got me there. He just made me ask the question and then told me I was a fool for asking it. But the point is not that we can't be curious. We can't wonder. The point is, it would be foolish to think that just because I can't imagine how it's going to work, it's not possible. So Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 36. Uh, Paul says, he gives us three little uh, lessons from nature. So again, if you're a gardener, this is, this is right up your alley. Next time you're doing any of these things, you can let that activity preach to you about your resurrection, Okay. Paul says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Okay, even I know this. If you have a packet of seeds, those seeds don't come to life unless you shove them in the ground, unless you give them, if you like, a burial. And so that the seed goes through a symbolic death in order to become something living. If you keep the packet of seeds unopened on the kitchen table, you are not going to have the thing that that seed is meant to grow into. It has to go into the ground first. So it's not completely ridiculous to think, that, well, actually, if you shove a human body into the ground, that it could one day come back into something else. Second thing Paul says in the next verse, he says, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So Paul is saying what you put into the ground isn't the thing that is going to come up out of the ground. Okay, the seed looks different to the product. You don't plant a carrot to dig up a carrot. You plant a carrot seed. And I, you know, in the interests of 
being biblically true, I researched this thoroughly by buying some packets of vegetable seeds and comparing what the seed looked like to what the plant and the vegetable would look like. Carrot seeds, to my disappointment, don't look like miniature carrots. In my mind, a carrot seed should be orange and carrot-shaped, but just really small. But the seed doesn't look like the thing that it produces. The before and after look completely different. So again, it's not inconceivable that the human body that is buried will be different to the human body that one day comes out of the ground. And then the third thing Paul shows us is this. In verse 39, Paul says, Not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, another for fish. You, you know when you're looking at a fish and you know when you're looking at a bird. You may not know the exact species and all the kind of Latin terminology for it, but you know a fish and you know a bird because they have particular kinds of flesh. God is good at making bodies for things. God is very good at making different types of bodies for different types of things. Paul says the same is true of, of space. He says there are heavenly bodies, by which he means planets. He's not talking about, you know, some supermodel. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differs from star in glory. God is really good at this. There's a staggering range of bodies God has made. His physical creativity is boundless. God is not like that band who they've, re you know, they've just released their sixth album, but basically all their songs sound the same. God's not like that. So Paul says we have good reason to not be skeptical about our future resurrection bodies. Because the very fact that we, we grow things in our garden is a sign that you can put something into the ground and something more amazing will eventually come out of it. And just because we can't imagine what our resurrection bodies will be like doesn't mean God can't. So what will they be like? Well, we're told that they will be like Jesus' body. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 49, he says, just as we've borne the image of the man of the dust, that's Adam, we're like him, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So we came, our first birth, we resembled Adam. Our new birth and resurrection, we will resemble Jesus. Uh, in Philippians 3 verse 21, Paul says, God will transform our lowly body, for lowly it is, to be like Jesus glorious body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verse uh, 42, Paul kind of lists the contrasts between your body now and your body in the age to come. He says, what is sown is perishable. Okay, your body is perishable. We know that. Uh, these attempts we make to try to look constantly young never actually work. I, I saw an image on, uh, online somewhere of a, a celebrity who I hadn't seen a picture of for about 15 years. 15 years ago, this celebrity looked 
much younger than her age. She'd had all kinds of surgery and Botox and all kinds of stuff, but 15 years later, kind of looked like Joker from Batman. Okay, it didn't, that, that stuff actually didn't work very well at making her continue to look young. Our bodies perish, we get old and we, we, we look like people who get old. But the body to come, Paul says, is imperishable. It will be eternal. It won't ever wear down. He says our bodies now are sown in dishonor. Our bodies are marked by sin. They're marked by our own sin, and they're marked, sadly, by the sin of others as well. We can't escape that. But the body to come will be raised in glory. It will be untarnished. Our bodies now, Paul says, are sown in weakness. Uh, We know that, don't we? Um, I'm in my mid-40s. I'm beginning to feel some of the limitation that comes with being in my mid-40s. I went hiking with um, a couple of friends of mine who were in their early 20s and realized I don't have the energy of a 21-year-old. I don't think I had the energy of a 21-year-old when I was 21. I certainly don't have it in my my mid-40s. But our new bodies, he says, will be raised in power. Um, Again, undiminishing power. And then finally, Paul says, our bodies now are natural, which is to say they fit this present world. We live in a world of disappointments, and our bodies reflect that. But he says the body to come will be spiritual, by which he doesn't mean it will be non-physical, but by which he means our physical resurrected bodies will be perfectly suited to glorifying God in every way that we're supposed to. And that is what makes our future bodies so wonderful. So... Okay, we we discover that we're going to have a resurrected body. And it's very easy for us to think, oh, at last, that's going to be great because maybe then I'll have the flat stomach. Or maybe then I'll have the full head of hair. Or whatever it might be. But here's the thing. What is going to make our resurrection body glorious is not that it conforms to what we imagine now to be the kind of ideal image of beauty, No, what is going to make those bodies glorious is we will be able to use those bodies to serve Jesus perfectly. That matters so much more than a flat stomach. I don't know if I'm going to have a flat stomach in the new creation. I don't care. But if I have a body that will enable me to perfectly glorify Jesus Christ, I can get behind that. So, friends, this is our hope in a world of disappointment. I don't know what your physical life is like at the moment. If we were to do a survey, there would be, I'm sure, quite an interesting range of medical conditions and medications and all the rest of it that we're all experiencing. But your physical life now is not the only physical life you're ever going to have. And you know what? It's not the best one. Um, In the age to come, you will have no more physical temptations. 
no more inappropriate lusts. No more physical ailments and weaknesses. No more shame in your body. No more sin. And no more death. However old you are, your best physical days are ahead of you and not behind you. So those of us who are getting to the age where we're having to say goodbye to certain physical capabilities and pleasures, you still have a perfect resurrection life to come. The best is still ahead. We don't need to live in ongoing nostalgia. Uh, this is the answer to FOMO. This is the answer to our deep fear of missing out. I don't need to spend every waking moment worrying that I'm not squeezing every last drop of pleasure out of this life. I don't need to worry if there are experiences I'm never going to have. Um, I don't need to worry if there are certain stunning places in the world I'm never going to see. I don't need to worry if the job I have doesn't feel completely satisfying and fulfilling because this life is not the only life I'm going to get to have. I don't need to worry about whether I'm getting my share of the pleasures of this world because this world is a pale reflection of the world that is to come. There's a, a dear saint in my uh, church, a, a sweet guy in his 60s, who experiences really painful migraines virtually constantly. He may have a few moments in a given day where there's a bit of relief, but basically he has an agonizing headache 24-7. And they've tried him on everything. Every, every couple of years they'll say, oh, we've got a new a new thing for you to try, he tries it, it doesn't make any difference. And so he needs to know, if I can put it this way, this is not the only head he's going to experience. Or I think of that wonderful Christian um, in America, Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of us will be familiar with her, her ministry. She's been paralyzed from the neck down since she was 17, confined to, a, a, confined to a wheelchair. She's now in her 70s, and she says the very first thing she plans to do with her resurrected legs is to fall on her knees before Christ in worship. The bodies we have now, the life we have now, is not the only life we're ever going to have. Um, occasionally, if I'm killing time in some place I've never been to in, in the UK, I'll, I'll look around a couple of old churchyards and just see who's, who's there. <laughs> um, see if any of the gravestones are legible. And on gravestones from a certain age, there is sometimes a Latin word, and I'm going to say this wrong so Latin speakers can correct me afterwards. Uh, there's a word, resurgum, which translates, I shall rise again. And I love that. It's a message of defiance. It's saying, yeah, I'm stuck down here right now looking up at the wrong end of flowers, but that's not the end of my story. 
I'm going to rise again. And that is going to be the case for every single one of us in Christ. Whether it, it is soon that we, we leave this world or whether it's in many years' time, each of us can say in Jesus, I'm going to rise again. And in fact, our whole lives now can be that one word, resurgum. So let me close by saying death in Christ, death is no longer a threat. Uh, the signs of aging are no longer a threat, but a promise. Uh, the wonderful Christian poet George Herbert once said that death used to be an executioner, but now because of Easter, death is just a gardener. And the fact is you don't, you don't bury a Christian, you plant a Christian. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that gives us hope in a world of disappointment. Well, thank you. This, I, I hope that hasn't contributed to your experience of, of disappointment. Maybe it has. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes, I think, before we need to um, vacate the room. Anyone want to ask a question, make a comment? If you stick a hand up and um, you will probably have to shout so that I can hear you. But anyone want to ask anything? Yes, please. Um, you, you talk quite a lot about our hope being in the afterlife, which is totally theologically sound. But what would you, what would your comment be? My heart is for heaven, like as, as is Jesus, is heaven on earth, heaven on earth now. So, and like Revelation one twenty one one twenty seven says, I am making all things new. Not I will make all things new. I at like now, like I'm making things new now. So. There is more hope than just after we die, right? <laughs> like, there's hope now, you know? Thank you. That, that's wonderful. Um, absolutely, amen, alleluia, and, and all of that. Because, um, as I said, the, the age to come is breaking in now. And every, every new believer is, is a, one very obvious instance of that. Um, and here's the thing, having our hope set on what we have in Jesus doesn't make us detached and useless in this world now. It actually frees us up to serve this world now because I don't need to be living for me now. If I've got this hope of a future resurrection, I don't need to be running around planet Earth now trying to fulfill myself. I can just shove all of that to one side and actually help to, to create the kind of counterculture Jesus wants us to create that is, again, another evidence of what Jesus has come to bring. So I'm so glad you raised that because that, that raises such a great point that actually this future hope transforms how we relate to the present. And it, actually, it should make us more impactful on this world precisely because we can be self-forgetful um, a dear friend of mine um, who's, who's not a Christian uh, nearly died 10, 15 years ago. Um, he had this weird thing happen and he 
statistically should not still be alive. And I remember, I remember asking him after he had kind of recovered and it was now apparent he was going to be returning to full health and praise God for that. Um, I remember saying, what, what difference do you think it's made to your life now that you thought you were about to die, but actually you're still here and you've got decades, God willing, left? He said, I now realize that I need to live for myself a little bit more than I have been. I now realize that I don't have limitless years to get done the things I've always wanted to get done. Because if your hope is only for this world, that is the logical conclusion. If the only opportunity you have is, is in this life, then you may as well spend this life thinking, well, I'm going to live for myself because I only get one shot at this. But if you know that your best is to come, then you're liberated from that. You can, you can live for others. So thank you, bless you for, for raising that. Um, anyone else want to raise anything? If not, I'll assume I've taught this exhaustively and perfectly and there's nothing else ever needs to be said about hope, the resurrection, the life to come or anything because I've just covered everything. Ah, yes, okay, you've disappointed me now. You mentioned about when we, if we get to heaven, the purpose to be glorifying Jesus as you see it. This might be quite a tricky question, but what does that look like to you? Thank you. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's another good question. And the, the, the Bible kind of tells us some things about life in the new creation um, without giving us a kind of fully fleshed out kind of picture of it. We know that we know that we will serve Jesus in the new creation. I mean, it will be a physical new creation. We'll have stuff to do, which again is, is fantastic because the work we do now doesn't, doesn't fulfill us. I mean, it, I've got a job I love. I know you've got a job you love. It still disappoints. It still has its bad days. But that we will have work to do for Jesus in the new creation that will be perfectly fitted to who we are. So that's one aspect. We will get to serve him practically simply by, I guess, doing the world-building stuff that God has people on planet Earth to do. Um, we know we will praise him, but that, that doesn't mean it's going to be a sort of just a, you know, four billion year long singing session. Um, you know, occasionally we'll get to sit down and do something different. So. I think we, we fall into two dangers when we try and visualize the age to come. One is, is that we turn it into, we're just going to be floating around and it's going to be a bit like church forever, which doesn't always excite us, let's be honest. The other mistake is that we, we go to the other extreme and we imagine all the things that we like the most about this life and how we're going to have those things and it's very easy for us, in our, in our view of the new creation, it's very easy for Jesus just not to be there. I mean, it's going to be me and my best friends and my, my dog's going to be there. I'm going to have like a, a really cool hammock and a nice view of the ocean. And 
you know, where's, where's Jesus in that? So it'll be a combination of, yes, the, 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 sort of the best of the physical life that we were designed for, but somehow we will have all of that, and yet, in a way I can't quite get my head around, we will struggle to take our eyes off Jesus. And that's going to be amazing, because we're told in, in 1 John that when we see him, we will be like him. And in fact, that's already happening now. The more we behold Jesus, the more we begin to resemble him. Um, so I, the, the short answer is I don't exactly know, but it's going to be amazing, and let's find out. Um, we certainly won't have any disappointment with it. So there's going to be some good TripAdvisor reviews. Um, I think we've probably got time for one more. Yeah. This is good. I need the exercise. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking about sometimes life is just hard. And um, if we're, like, it's hard ourselves or um, if it's hard for other people and we're supporting that, that's really tough. And um, it's any kind of tips, kind of words of wisdom about, like, kind of supporting people through that um, raw, difficult time in disappointment. Yeah, thank you so much for raising that. Um, and, and yes, that is, that is the case. Life, this is a world of disappointment. For some people, it's a world of particularly acute disappointment and pain. And as you, as you said, for others, it's most of life is looking after one of those people who, who are going through something chronic and, and sort of unremitting. Um, the, the Bible has lots of wisdom for us on how to care for others who are, who are suffering. Um, Job gives us a lot of bad examples of, of what not to do. Um, people being very emotionally unintelligent and drawing the wrong theological inferences out of the fact that someone is, is suffering. Um, we're certainly told in, in the Bible to be, to be people who are naturally compassionate. So we, we're to, you know, we weep with those who weep. We're to enter into something of what someone else is going through. That, that doesn't mean, you know, I'm going to pretend I understand what they're going through because I won't. But it does mean that I'm affected by what they're going through. I'm, I'm close enough and involved enough that it has an impact on my emotional life. Um, the, the great example of that is, is Jesus. We're, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that he is not unable to sympathize with us. Even though he's already in glory, he's already in heaven, even as we suffer and groan and struggle in this life, Jesus is able to to feel for us and to understand us. Actually, in a way, even our best and closest friends can't even manage to, which I, I think is a wonderful comfort. There's no, there's no type of suffering that Jesus doesn't know better than we do, which means whatever suffering we're going through or our friends are going through, Jesus is always a great saviour to turn to and to pray to. He always gets it. Even some of our best-meaning friends who really want to help don't get it. They don't quite understand it. 
But, but Jesus always does, and he helps us, I think, more than would otherwise be the case, to begin to do so as well. Uh, the New Testament has so much to say about bearing one another's burdens, using the resources, time, money, whatever we have to provide for those who are in need. And for some people, the need will be a time need more than a money need. So giving of our time and company to those who might benefit from it. Um, and hopefully our churches will be ground zero for that kind of love and compassion. And one of the most beautiful things about God is he's steadfast. Um, we never wear him out. We never exhaust Jesus. We never deplete him in our need for him. We can exhaust each other. That happens. But Jesus will never be tired of us. And the more each of us leans into that, the more that will help us imperfectly, incompletely, but nevertheless truly to reflect something of his, his steadfastness to one another as well. So hopefully we'll be people who stick around and aren't just in it because it's a, you know, we're not just doing this as a, a project or a phase. So I hope that, I hope that helps. Um, thank you so much. Let me pray for us and then I'll uh, let you head off. Father, we thank you that though this world is a world of disappointment, you have given us an awareness of that fact and a, a sense that there should be more than this. And that sense itself is, is so revealing and so telling that ultimately, Lord, we, we begin to realize we weren't designed for this world, but for a very different kind of world. And we thank you for all that Jesus has come into this world to do and to win for us. Thank you for the hope that we have in him, hope that we can get in on now, hope that can change us now. So help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on Jesus, um, to weather the disappointments of this world with that kind of faithfulness to you, uh, that we would be people who cannot ultimately be shaken. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.